I want to start just with a little, little confession about something dumb I did. Is that okay? Um, if you wanted to feel better about yourself, uh, I'll start by helping you. Um, so our, a couple of our kiddos had birthdays this past Friday, so we had a birthday party. And we went to one of those cheer places where they have, like the floors are a little springy and there are mats and there's a bouncy house and it's just right, like heaven for them. And <laughs> for them, for them. And um, so my oldest, who's 13, 13, uh, was racing like a 19 year old who was there. And, but some kid in the party had told me that I looked 18 or 20. So I thought, I'm gonna race too. Um, and so I line up and Cohen and I race and friends, I'm here to tell you I won. I didn't just win, I smoked him. Now he's claiming there was child interference, but that just sounds like an excuse, right? It was a fake race, he's been saying all that stuff. Um, I won the race. What I didn't expect, I was running, I was going so fast. I was about to go back to the future. I was going that fast. And there was a wall in front of me and I thought, I'm just gonna let the wall stop me. It was a curtain. It was a curtain and at 88 miles an hour, I went through that curtain and landed knee first down a pit. There were snakes back there, it was awful. I landed down in this thing and when I got up, I immediately thought, I've either broken my knee or, and then as time went on, it started swelling and bruising and then I could feel like 10, whatever those things are in your leg, like crawling up. I thought, I've torn everything in my knee. And the first thought I had was, how am I going to get on stage Sunday? Uh, I'm going to have to be carried. Fortunately, I'm feeling so much better and I don't think I tore anything. I think I've just got some you know, blunt force trauma to the knee. Um, but I'm gonna bounce back and uh, somebody asked me, would you race him all over again? You're exactly right, I would do it all over again. I have zero regrets, uh, will happen again for sure. So that's how I started my new year, was wondering if I was gonna have major reconstructive knee surgery. Hopefully your new year um, started off better <laughs> and different than that. Um, it's, it's so good to be in this room. It's so good to be with you online, wherever you are in the world. Uh, it's a brand new year, it's a, it's a new church year. Um, if you follow the Christian calendar, you know Advent, which we just celebrated, begins the church year. We start our year um, when, when the light is the most scarce, um, we start telling our story. And after Advent, we move into a, a day, uh, some people call it a season, some people just say it's a day, called Epiphany, uh, which is January 6th. Um, so there actually are good things that can be celebrated on that day. Fortunately, um, uh, and um, Epiphany is uh, really, it focuses on a couple of specific events. One, it focuses on what is known as the Adoration of the Magi. So in Matthew 2, where the, we often have called them kings or wise men, that's actually not what they're called in the text. When they bring their gifts of gold, uh, uh, frankincense and myrrh to the infant Christ. Uh, and it also focuses on Jesus' baptism, which we will talk a little bit about later. But epiphany also means something else for us. I mean, epiphany in the technical sense in, in the Christian calendar means appearance, right? It's, a, it's the appearance of Jesus to the Gentiles. It's the appearance of Jesus in, the, in baptism uh, to the world, essentially. 
Um, but for us, epiphany also means something a little more nuanced. It, it, it's sort of when you have that sudden realization, right? Uh, an epiphany is when it just, something just dawns on you, when the light bulb goes on. Uh, we often maybe call them aha moments. How many of you have ever had one of those? Not even religiously, but like you, you just were doing your thing and all of a sudden something clicked for you that hadn't clicked before. The lights came on and you were like, that's what that's about. Anybody ever been told a joke? And like six months later, you're driving alone in your car and you're like, that's hilarious. Um, yeah, it's these aha moments when, when something that maybe the, the dots had not been connected before, but now suddenly the dots are connected and the picture emerges and you, you're starting to get it. It's dawning on you. And, and really what an epiphany is, it's about learning to see differently. It's when you start seeing things in a way you had not seen them before. Uh, so we're going to do a series um, for the month of January, the beginning of February, called Epiphany, Learning to See Differently. And what I'm hoping happens in this story, uh, this series, is that you're going to hear epiphany stories. Um, so today I'm going to share some stories uh, from the Bible that are epiphany stories. Next week I'm going to share some of the ones that have been most meaningful to me for my own life and journey. And then over the next several weeks, you're going to hear from other voices who are going to come in and share some of theirs as well. You're going to hear from my friend Megan Crozier. Megan um, is the Pursuing Life Online. I know lots of you follow her. You're going to hear from Paula Stone Williams. Any Paula Stone Williams fans in the house? Paula is a, such a dear friend. I'm excited to have her. And then Colby Martin is going to be here as well in February. Anybody know Colby who wrote the book on Clobber? Yeah, so Colby's going to be here as well. So we have a lot of exciting uh, stories that we're going to hear. And my hope is, because this is the way it's always worked for me, um, I better can see my own story and I have better lenses and eyes to see what's happening in my own journey when I'm hearing other people talk about theirs, um, which is why community is so important, why being around other human beings and talking to other human beings is so important because there's something about hearing somebody else's story and this is their own unique journey, but somehow it helps us begin to think about our own stories and our own journey. Um, and so my hope is that by the end of this series, what we've done is we've heard some incredible stories that have maybe equipped us a bit to have eyes to see. Because if you're like me, you probably live most of your life going, uh, you wake up in the morning, um, I almost started singing the Saved by the Bell theme song. I am so sorry, that just popped in my head. Um, just popped in my head, 80s, 90s kid. But you wake up and every day is pretty similar. You have a routine, you have things you do, responsibilities. And I don't wake up every day going, there, there's going, going to be an epiphany moment for me today. I just kind of go through. And my hope is that we have, and every day doesn't have those, right? But my hope is that we're better attuned and equipped and, and our antennas are up and we're paying a bit more attention to what maybe moments are out in front of us that can teach us something. So I wanna look just at, at a few epiphany stories in the Bible uh, because, and I worked really hard to, to cull this list down to like four or five because there were, I wanted to do like 30, but I thought you may have plans later and I don't like to assume. Uh, so I wanna look at five and I'm not gonna read you every story. I'm just gonna kind of tell them to you. And these are five stories that for me have become really, really meaningful uh, and, and have shaped my own journey a bit. And I wanna begin with a story about a guy named Jacob from Genesis 28. This guy, Jacob, uh, when we meet him in Genesis 28, he is on the run uh, because he has angered his brother Esau. 
Um, if, if you know the story, Jacob and Esau, Esau's older, Jacob, they're twins, but Esau's the older, which means in the world that they lived in, that Esau would get a double portion of inheritance, a, a blessing from uh, his father that was so central to, in their mind, words mattered and had power, which they actually do, but that this would somehow set him up better in life. And Jacob wanted what Esau had. And there are two different stories about how he took it, um, because there are two different sources telling the story. One involves some stupid um, and Esau comes home hungry and trades his birthright for a bowl of stew. Um, Got to question that choice. Um, figure he could have found something else. The other story involves their father Isaac being near death and being unable to see and uh, Jacob and his mother tricking him by putting on goat skins because Esau was really hairy, which I love when the Bible gives us detail. Um, hairy guy, he puts on goat skins, they trick uh, Isaac, the father, and he blesses Jacob instead of Esau. When this happens, Esau is furious and says, when, when dad dies and we've mourned him, I'm gonna kill my brother. And, and mom overhears it and sends Jacob away to go visit other family to help him survive his brother. Now, when Jacob's on the journey in Genesis 28, we find out he, and the text says he comes to a place, like a certain place, but it really just had, means he came to a place where it was just a place it wasn't like a place where he expected something to happen, right? It wasn't a place where he expected a moment. Um, and he was tired, and so he grabbed a rock, and he laid down on it, and he went to sleep. And while he was asleep, he has this dream. And in this dream, there's this ladder, or better, a stairway, ascending from he descending from heaven to earth. And there are all these heavenly beings going up and down on the stairway, and God's there. And in this dream, God speaks to Jacob and says, look, um, wherever you go, I'll go with you. And someday I'm gonna bring you back to this particular land and you're going to be back and you're going to be home and it's gonna be okay. But wherever you go, I'll go with you. And Jacob wakes up from this sleep and he says the exact opposite of what American Christians would say. Because American Christians would often say, wow, I was just sleeping and God showed up. You ever been in a God showed up moment where, where something cool happened? You were like, wow, God just showed up. Don't know where they've been the rest of the time, but finally they showed up. Or, or, or church, you know, I can remember growing up in church and church was really good one Sunday, which I guess is a value judgment on all the other Sundays, but it was really, really good one week. And it was like, wow, we were, we were just at church this morning and God showed up. That's not what Jacob says. Jacob wakes up and he says, the Lord is definitely in this place. I didn't know it. Jacob's assumption is not, God showed up and now I know it. Jacob's assumption was, oh, this, this place, God has always been in this place. I was unaware, my antennas weren't up, my vision wasn't focused. I didn't see what has always, always, always been true. And this was sort of a, a paradigm shift for Jacob because in the ancient world, there's sort of this understanding that deities were geographically locked. There's a God of this place and a God of that place. And when these two places go to war, these two gods are at war and whatever place wins, that God wins, right? Gods don't really cross international boundaries. But what Jacob learns in this story is actually this God is going to go with me and going to, when I, when I cross from this geography to this geography, I'm, I'm not gonna, this God's not gonna just hang out here waiting for me to come back. This God is everywhere. This God is going to journey with me. It's an epiphany moment where Jacob has this understanding. God is actually way bigger than I thought God was. Anybody else had one of those moments? 
when the, you, you sort of come to this, oh, I've been keeping the, the divine in this little box and the divine's going, there's a box? Right, it's not that you need a bigger box. You do not need a bigger box for God. Throw the box away, recycle it, but get rid of the box, right? Uh, that's what Jacob learns. It's not God who shows up ever. It's always us. There are no God-forsaken places. There are people-forsaken places in the world. Um, and, and the people who, the one who needs to show up in the world is not God, it's, it's us. There's another story about a man named Moses. And Moses is similar to Jacob in that Moses has been on the run because Moses occupied a really interesting space in the world. Uh, Moses was a Hebrew which uh, at this point in history, the Hebrews were enslaved by the Egyptians. And yet also Moses by uh, some interesting, there's a whole backstory, but Moses ends up being raised by Pharaoh's daughter. So he's a member of an oppressed people, but he's growing up in the, the palace in luxury with power. And one day Moses sees one of uh, the Egyptians mistreating an enslaved Hebrew and he kills the Egyptian and buries him. But then it comes out, People find out Moses decides he has to flee to save his life. And so he runs into the desert. He ends up meeting some people, getting married, and he's working for his father-in-law. He's, he's shepherding, taking sheep around. And in this one particular story, Moses is taking the flocks on a mountain and it's a, it's a spot maybe that Moses has been by so many times. You ever, you ever been so on autopilot that you have the same drive all the time? You get there and you're like, how did I get here? Anybody ever have that happen to you? Uh, you pull into the parking lot, you snap out of your tr trench, you're like, what? There was traffic. I turned left. I made decisions. Remember none of them. And is that just me? Like, that's a real thing. And I just imagine that you, you, know, you get in your routine, you take the sheep to this place, to that place. And who, who knows how many times Moses has who's been by this, but at this one particular moment, he, he sees this bush that is on fire, but it's not burning up. It's not being consumed. And curiosity gets the best of him. And Moses walks over to this place and a voice speaks to him. It's the voice of the divine. It says, Moses, take off your shoes. The ground you're standing on is holy. And of course, the conversation since this story was written has been among teachers and rabbis. Is, was the ground always holy? Was the bush always burning? And it's just this moment Moses has eyes to see and has ears to hear his name being called. And it's in this moment that Moses realizes that the ground has always, always, always been holy. Because all ground is holy ground. This whole idea of sacred and profane, of, of sacred and secular, it's something we made up in our desire to carve the world up when in reality, all of creation is dripping with transcendence. All of creation is saturated in the divine. And Moses has this, and, and in this moment when Moses hears his voice and he goes over, he becomes aware that he's being invited. And Moses has a million reasons why he shouldn't be the person, but he realizes this epiphany moment. I, have, I occupy an interesting space in the world and I am the one who has to act as liberator in this moment. I'm going to go back and I'm going to be a mouthpiece for my enslaved and oppressed siblings. What this paradigm shift is 
this epiphany moment for Moses is really unique in human history in that the ancient world sort of saw it one way, that the gods are at the top of the power pyramid, but right under the gods are the people, the kings, the rulers that the gods put into place because the gods pick who's in charge. And if the gods appointed somebody, you, if you have a problem with them, you have a problem with God. And that means whatever they, they do, whatever the kings and rulers do is okay because the gods put them in charge. And at the bottom of the power pyramid are essentially everybody who the kings order around oppress and harm. And what this story does is it locates the divine, not at the top of the pyramid, supporting those in power, supporting the oppressor. It locates the divine at the bottom of the pyramid, calling for the oppressed to go free. It is a foundational shift in human history an understanding that where we find God is not among the powerful, not among those doing harm, not among those traumatizing and abusing. Where we find God is in solidarity with the victims of trauma and abuse and harm. And maybe the fundamental mistake of Christianity in 2000 years has been, we have always wanted to locate God at the top among the powerful. And we have failed to see, even though Jesus spelled it out pretty plainly, Not a lot in the Bible's plain. I think Jesus was pretty plain on this one thing. That if you want to find God, if you want to know where the divine is active, you will always find them among the oppressed, those who are grieving, those who are hurting, those who have been discarded, marginalized, and forgotten. And when Moses slips off his sandals and realizes that the ground has always been holy, he comes to this other realization that God is on the side of the powerless, not the powerful and that perhaps we are only on God's side when we are doing the same. There's another great story um, from the life of Jesus, which is celebrated on Epiphany, which is about Jesus' baptism. It's actually where the gospel of Mark begins. Um, The infancy stories that we have, the the Christmas narratives, didn't really enter the Christian tradition until it seems like the 80s, not the 1980s, the 80s, 80s. Um, Before that, Gospel of Mark in 70 begins with Jesus' baptism. And there's this guy in the desert named John, kind of a wild guy. He's out baptizing people as a way of showing repentance, that you're changing your heart and life and you're identifying with this movement called the kingdom of God. And so Jesus goes out to be baptized. And when he's in the water, he has this moment where he's baptized and he comes up out of the water. And depending on which gospel you read, the details are a little different about who saw it and who understood it. But there's this moment where the heavens are torn in two and a dove descends onto Jesus. And he hears this voice saying, this is my son, the beloved. In him, I find joy. And it seems like that moment for Jesus was a moment, we would say a moment of understanding your calling. Anybody ever had that moment where you realize this is the thing you're gonna do with your life? Um, this moment where like, oh, this is, this is the work I've been given. To. And maybe it changes over, maybe you've had a million of those, right? Like this is my job right now. This is the thing I've been given to do in the world. It's to, to do this, to love these people, to show up here, to volunteer here, to give of myself, like whatever that is. But you had this sense of, I got, a, I got some stuff to do in the world and it matters. By the way, everybody has some stuff to do in the world and it really matters. And Jesus has this moment of understanding the heavens part and the spirit of God in symbol, symbolized by a dove, right? Symbolized by peace, which is how Jesus is going to do this work, not as a violent um, military person, but as a bringer of peace through justice. 
the, the, this moment for Jesus was sort of where the light bulb goes on. It's an aha moment, like, okay, I know what is mine to do. In that moment, actually, Jesus immediately goes into some temptations where he, that, that sort of understanding of who he is and what he's been given to do immediately gets pushed at, poked at, prodded at, and tested. And because Jesus has this, this moment, this epiphany moment to go back to, he's like, no, no, I know what my work is. Uh, my work isn't to do all of those things. My work is to do this. Another one is this guy um, named Paul, who uh, we, we kind of love to hate. I think it's because of how he's been understood and interpreted. Um, and he gets credit for a lot of stuff he didn't write, by the way. Paul wrote seven letters in the New Testament. There are six others in his name that scholars pretty much universally agree based on content and language and style, Paul couldn't have written. Most of the stuff people get mad at Paul about, Paul didn't, didn't do, right? Like he didn't write. But Paul has this moment, he has this experience, this epiphany moment that changes his life. Paul was actually resisting the Jesus movement. And, and depending on where you read, right? There are these stories in the book of Acts that they tell of, of his, he was going by Saul at the time, it's his Hebrew name, Paul's his Greek name. Uh, he has this, uh, this experience where he experiences the risen Jesus and he has this moment of, of what we might call conversion where he realizes I've been wrong and I'm gonna be a part of this movement now, right? Like my resisting of this, I wanna be a part of it. Um, now here's what's interesting about that. If you read all three stories in the book of Acts, Paul tells them every time and not once do the, all the details agree. Um, and so there's, Acts is a late text. Most scholars would say that Acts is probably not historical in the sense that it's not giving us literal history. Um, but it's very clear that Paul had some sort of experience. My favorite way he puts it is in Galatians chapter one. Um, he, there's this line in Galatians where he says, but God had set me apart from birth and called me through his grace. He was pleased to reveal his son to me so that I might preach about him to the Gentiles, to the people who are outside of my tradition. Now here's what's interesting. That's actually not what the text says. That's what the text says in the Bibles you would buy. But if you read the Bible that you might buy or that you read online, there'd be a little footnote there. And if you go down to the footnote, it says, uh, the text doesn't say that God was pleased to reveal his son to me. It says that God was pleased to reveal his son in me, which is different. Now here's a little, this is why all, I'm, uh, time out. This is why all translations are interpretations because there are some scholars who desperately want Acts to line up with Galatians. And the only way you can do that, because Acts says it was an external experience, Galatians says it was an internal experience. Well, clearly Paul must have meant too. We just need to change the word and we'll footnote it. But what it seems to Paul saying is that he had an experience inside of him that transformed his life. And I don't know what it was. I don't know what that experience was, but it took him from being a person who wanted to see this movement end to a person who was willing to risk his very life for this movement. There was, and there's this beautiful image in Acts because after he experiences externally the risen Christ, he's blinded by the experience. And when this particular person prays for him, scales fall off his eyes. You ever had that experience? Where you've been seeing it one way for so long, but something happens to you, in you, and it's like scales fall off and you begin to see it completely differently. I'm gonna share some of those stories about my own journey next week because that has happened to me more times than I wish it would have had to. Where I was so certain I was right about something. And it always had to do with usually marginalizing and keeping other people away. But because of moments of real experience, it was like scales fell off my eyes and I could really begin to see. 
And then maybe we can say like this, Paul's epiphany moment, whatever it was, changed him from being somebody who was opposed to this work, to this message, to somebody willing to put it deeply within their bones. And then maybe one of my favorite stories in the whole New Testament is the last one. From Acts chapter 10, it's where this guy named Simon Peter has this experience where he's lived his entire life with this understanding of this is how the world works, it's clean and unclean. And he has this experience where he's hungry and he's on a roof and he's praying and he has a vision. And in the vision, a sheet drops down from heaven and there are all these animals on it and they're all unclean. And a voice, it's God in the text says, Peter, get up and kill something and eat it. And he's like, no. By the way, I would also say no for different reasons. Like, that doesn't seem like a thing I would be good at. Um, get up, kill, and eat. He's like, no, 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 I've never, I've never ingested anything unclean. I can't do that. And God, in this vision, says to him, don't ever, don't ever call anything unclean that God has called clean. And this happens three times, and eventually, after this moment, he goes, he's invited to the house of a Gentile. This Gentile joins the way of Jesus, and this Gentile experiences the exact same thing Peter did when he joined the way of Jesus. And he has this moment, it's really great. It's, like, it's, it's, take, it's a slow burn for him on this. And after there's this, this big moment with this guy named Cornelius, he says, I'm starting to think, stay with me, that maybe God is like for everybody. Regardless of the label I've tried to place on them. I'm starting to think that maybe God's love and embrace are bigger than I imagined. That maybe what the problem is, isn't that God only has so much to dole out, but maybe the problem is my imagination has been far too small. And by the way, Peter doesn't make this uh, decision as somebody who leaves his Jewish faith and becomes Christian. What he's actually stepping into is something that has been deeply embedded in the Jewish tradition forever this expansiveness of God's love and faithfulness for the whole wide world. If you want to turn Judaism into a religion that is legalistic and narrow, you, you, you can read that out of the text, but you're ignoring everything else in the Bible that actually talks about this God of love, compassion, forgiveness, mercy, and healing for the entire human family. That's not a New Testament idea. That is not a Jesus idea. That is a Jewish idea. And, and Peter in this moment wakes up to something that has been deeply embedded in his tradition that he has not really been paying close enough attention to. And his experience of Jesus and his experience of God awakened in him this sense of, oh, this is what our tradition is supposed to be. Anybody had that experience? Maybe you've spent your entire life as a Christian and your entire life you were told, these people are in, these people are out. These people are going to heaven, these people, uh-oh. And something happened for you where you begin to realize, whoa, whoa, whoa. Is it possible that God's love and kindness are far more expansive than I ever gave God credit for? Look, I think that uh, the Bible seems to me to be one epiphany story after another, right? And here's the danger when we turn it into this, this library of stories and songs and poems, when we turn this into like a, a litmus test for every experience and we try to say, well, this says this, so that doesn't count. We fail to see what the Bible actually is. The, the Bible's not trying to tell us every answer to everything, it can't do that. What the Bible's trying to say is, look, epiphany moments happen, pay attention to them. Because when they happen, 
everything changes. Because the truth is, epiphany is everywhere. Anybody grow up thinking that the only time God could talk to you or communicate with you or any kind of divine experience would have to happen at church? Then you came to church at a music club and you begin to realize, whoa, 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 all ground is holy ground. Anybody ever been sitting and watching the sun? I prefer sunsets because they happen later. Um, but have you ever been watching the sun do what it does and you have this sense of wonder and awe and you're inspired and you, you begin to feel like there's this creeping holiness all around you that maybe the golden rays of the sun are just beginning to illuminate, but it's always been there. And you have this experience like, wait, I'm not in church. I'm not reading the Bible. I'm not listening to CCM. What is happening? What is happening is you're waking up to something that has always, 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 always been true. The ground was holy before religion ever emerged into human consciousness. And if religion goes away, the ground will still be holy when it's gone. That's how this works. And I think what these epiphany moments always, and by the way, they're not all spectacular. They're not all spectacular. They're not all moments where you're like, wow, that bush is on fire. <laughs> and who amongst us would not grab a fire extinguisher? Like, like, are we missing our epiphany moments because we're putting them out, right? But look, they're not all spectacular. Some of them, some of the most profound moments of my life are spent across the table at a coffee or with my kids where nothing big happens. The heavens don't tear open. The dove doesn't descend. But I'm just reminded that it's all holy and that it all matters and that it's all good. They're not all spectacular. And it seems like what these epiphany stories do for us, what our own epiphany moments do for us is they invite us to take the next right step, whatever that looks like. Just whatever that looks like, whatever that is for you. I don't know what that is for you. I, know, I don't even know sometimes what that is for me in the moment, but it's just about the next right step. It's not figuring out your life for the next 10 years. It doesn't mean like you do what I did in youth group, which is you got really on fire for the Lord and you got rid of all the good music you had. Um, anybody else have that 90s experience where you're like, I love Jesus, I'm gonna listen to For Him. Here's my Matchbox 20 CDs. Like, you know what I mean? Like that, that's not, no, 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 no. No, no, the first step for you may just be settling into your own belovedness. The first step for you may be trying to silence the voice of shame and to hear the true voice. And what the real voice says about you is that you are God's beloved child and in you they find happiness. Right as you are just now, not when you get rid of all your secular music. maybe what the epiphany stories are trying to remind us is that it's never static and we've never arrived. It never stops. It, it, it's not just downloading all the right information and now you're good. It's this journey, this spiritual journey, this faith journey. It's all about continuing to grow and change. It's never static. It doesn't stay the same. You've never arrived. Maybe put it like this. It's always evolving, always dynamic. It's always growing. It's never arrived. It's always arriving. The plane doesn't land. It may feel like it dips for a minute, but then right back, it's not Southwest. It dips for a minute and then it goes right back up. I fly Southwest all the time, low hanging fruit, and it goes right back up. And the point of the stories in the Bible are not to replace our experiences, but to help us see them better. The stories in the Bible are not to say, these are the only experiences and if you don't fit in here, you're out. It's almost like the stories in the Bible are signposts saying like, this is what an experience like this might be like. In metaphorical language, this is what an experience might be like. 
But the point is always to help us see our own. And that's my goal in the series, is that in hearing other stories and hearing others' journeys and hearing the experiences other people have that flipped the light bulb on, that made the antennas kind of perk up, that did the thing, like that helped somebody take another step on their journey, is that as a community, we might have better eyes to see, better ears to hear, and better hearts that are open to respond. Are you with me? Yeah.